was an idea. Hmm. Half of all life, by the way, confirmed by many people. Plants, animals, bacteria. When we went to the film in the theaters, this is a three-hour film. I got four pages of notes here to go through. We actually had to plan out bathroom breaks. Like, okay, you go, then you come back, you sh we share what you missed, and then you go, and we share what you missed, and then you go. We had to stagger it. Funnily enough, the scene I missed was actually pretty critical. Go figure. Film opens with Barton. Can you imagine what that's like? Because I can't. Just another day, you know, house arrest. So just as it is, apparently his house arrest area is a lot more uh, lenient since he's just out in the yard, but whatever. Oh, they're gone. You don't even know that they're gone. You don't even know why they're gone. <laughs> just, just, hey, where'd my family go? Yeah. You can barely see the ash in the background, too. Act one. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Act 1 is what I like to call the fake-out. So, we see Nebula continuing to grow as a person. There's actually a really great bit where Stark offers her some of his food, and she looks at it and says, No, you take it. There also was, some of you talked about this during my discussion stream, there was, in fact, a little bit of a blinking red light in the background, so we can assume there was, in fact, a distress signal. Holy crap, <laughs> didn't see that last time. And he's leaving his messages for Pepper. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I wanna share something weird here. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big guy, right? I'm actually, I've, I'm kind of fat right now, and it's something I've been trying to fight for the last several years, but I wasn't always. There are a couple times in my life where, thanks to severe illness and literal starvation, I was about as tiny as Stark was there. You know, he's you see him more clearly when he gets back to Earth, and he needs a wheelchair and a frickin' IV to... Yeah, I've, I've been there. I have actually been there. It's not fun. It's not fun. I only point that out because I can just picture what that would be like to just kind of slowly waste away like that. And there's no hope. Of course there isn't. Which is okay, because then Captain Marvel finds him. Woo! I guess we've officially gotten to the point where mid-credit scenes are, are considered mandatory because they don't actually bridge anything else. It's just, boom, she's there. We, uh... Oh, God. Tony gets back. I couldn't stop him. Neither could I. They were separate. <laughs> I'll get to that in a bit. And the second thing that Tony says is, I lost the kid. You know, what's funny is I'm actually not even sure Cap knows who that is at this point in time. You know, Tony trying to be a father for Parker. I, I'm not even sure he's he's aware of that development because of everything that happened back in Civil War. That Sokovia Accords really did mess up everything, didn't it? Mm. Tony, oh God, Tony's so, so bitter. So gone. You take this and you put it on and you hide. Of course he's so bitter. Like he says, he's been trying to do this forever. He directly references Ultron several times. That is to say, the film, not the, the character. And the idea, I guess he references the Ultron program, but he's just looking at this like, I, where were you? Where were we? We failed. 
We did the worst thing he has ever feared in his entire life just happened right in front of his eyes. Yeah, I'm amazed he is cognizant right now. He could be literally gibbering for all the trauma he just went through. The fact that he is capable of speaking coherent sentences is astonishing. You can see why he just decided to dig himself into a hole for five years and just nope the rest of the world out. Kind of hard to blame him. So Nebula gives her unnecessary answer about the garden. And Rocket shows the, the scan. Funny fact, actually, you see the scan, it comes out in like Middle Eastern Africa, a.k.a. right where Wakanda is. Nice touch. Very, very little thing. I just wanted to point it out. So they're like, okay, this is it. This is what we're going to do. Notice that this whole time Thor hasn't said a word. He's just been kneeling over there, just blank-faced, nothing going on. Well, I mean, what can he possibly say at this point? He also feels immensely guilty. After all, he not only failed, he then failed immediately after that. Despite all his sacrifice, it was all for nothing because he screwed up and he knows it. He does say he likes, you know, danders, but that that's all he does. So, uh... There's this really nice line where Captain says, of course, is it going to work? Because I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't. That's, yeah, that's, that's, a nice, that's a nice point there. Then we cut to Thanos, who's limping, barely moving. His left arm barely works, just barely, and he's just, ugh. And this is the second time in the last couple months I've talked about the value and power of a properly orchestrated sneak attack and an alpha strike combined into one because they just get on him and bam no eh, er, grab and chop okay he's gone okay we did it we defeated thanos Whew. and this is it only takes them seconds seconds to defeat thanos if they had done that to begin with well they might have won but of course that requires being able to sneak up on your target and having all your pieces in position and knowing what you're doing and just all sorts of other stuff that obviously they didn't have that's the value of the alpha strike so Thanos finishes his character arc. The monk, who, despite his, you know, despite his determination, he feels that regret. He feels that inevitability of it. It's done, though. And make, sacrificing of himself, he did that second snap, knowing it might kill him. And he was okay with that. He was okay with dying at that point in time. And there's no regret. There's no hesitation, I should say. That's, that's a better word. And Thor walks away. I went for the head. What? It's like he said to. Boom. Five years later. Oh my god, my audience. I know you European viewers are looking at me like, God, your audience is terrible, but seriously, there was just some audible gasps when that came up on the screen. Like, what? <laughs> what? And remember, all of this sticks. All of the five years that pass sticks. So that's fun. Now, this leads us to Act 2 what I like to call the Fallout Act. No reference to the game series, although kind of, because it's all about the fallout of... Well, wrong hand. It's all about the fallout of... There we go. Yeah, five years. There are some inconsistencies. I'm going to go ahead and admit this. Some things work a little bit better than they should and are, and are in better condition than they should be. And this is kind of a byproduct of the nature of the construction of the story. Sometimes they want to show you just how bleak and despairing and hopeless it is. And other times they want to have people playing Fortnite while making jokes. You can't really have both of those from a setting-constructed perspective when you look at what happened. Because the overall idea here 
is that what has happened is so monstrously and massively devastating that the world should barely be able to function. Again, half of all life. Animals, plants, bacteria, people. Billions dead. Yeah, sure, that's only the beginning of the apocalypse. And of course, this is true everywhere else. But at least on Earth, Earth... There's actually been some disagreements on exactly how well Earth should be able to be doing after this. And I think that's part of why there's such an inconsistency in the film. I will say that they show some really good scenes to help emphasize how empty and devoid the world has become. Because, well, let's go ahead and just be real with each other for a second here. If half of life just died, I'm pretty sure a decent chunk of it, at least a noticeable percent of the life that remains, would follow it shortly thereafter. Not because of starvation or whatever, but because of violence, or because of panic, or because of just straight suicide. No, seriously. I, I think we can all admit and acknowledge that. There's this bit where they show uh, Rogers, and he's in this room. And there's a brilliant little bit of visual storytelling there, because he's in a fairly large room. You know, decent-sized meeting room. And there are like four or five tables, and all of them have the chairs up still, up, you know, like they put the chair upside down on the table. And there's just eight people, I counted. Let me make sure I'm getting the right number. Yep, eight people in that room, in a room that could fit hundreds if you really crammed them in, or dozens at the easiest. But no, eight guys, eight people, excuse me. <sighs> yeah. Now, I also want to point out just about all of the scenes in Act Two are very quiet. If there's music, it's very low. Strings, Alan Silvestri doing what he does best. Um, if there's sound effects, they're very muted. They try to pull a lot of the audio out of a lot of the scenes, so all you can really hear is the people talking, and that's it, and nothing else. Just a lot of effort to make everything very, seem very still. Another very nice side point, you don't hear animals or crickets or birds or whatever in the background in virtually any of the scenes up until when that happens towards the later end of the film. My snaps are terrible today. Nope. There we go. Now, this then leads to a really good scene that I want to give special individual praise to. Um, you know, he's talking about baby steps, baby steps. We all have to move forward, right? We have to keep going. We have to keep being. Um, Joe Russo actually plays the, the gentleman. Now... This is going to sound weird to point out, but I pointed it out during the stream, and I want to point it out here, too. Because what they do is exactly right. So he's gay, right? Or bisexual, it doesn't matter. But he's, he mentions he's dating another guy. No emphasis is put on that. They don't draw attention to it. They don't pause the film to do it. He just talks casually about it, and the only thing that indicates it at all is the fact that, he changed, that the pronoun is him instead of her, and that's it. Now, I said this on stream, and I'll say this again here. I like that. Make it normal, basically. Make it completely ordinary. It doesn't need to have a spotlight shined on it because there's nothing unusual or wrong or awful about it. You don't need to champion it any more than you need to hate it, right? It is. And, of course, Captain America just goes along with that, too. Rogers is just, ah, oh, that's awesome. You know, baby steps, baby steps. It's just so wonderfully presented. I, I hate to, to, to use that the word normalized again, but that's... A great word for it. Because in my opinion, it is so rare that fiction gets that right. Anyways, so uh, then we cut to um, 
a little bit. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm checking my notes here. Ah, yep, no, I'm right, because this is a really long film. It actually took me a lot longer than three hours to get through this film, because I kept having to look stuff up, and I kept pausing, and I actually had to stretch in the middle of it. It's a three-hour film. There's a the, the, the rat, the rat that releases... Oh my God, Scott! There's a lot of names to keep track here, and it's like, oh God, and they they skip most of the repeat exposition. Instead, it's just there's abandoned homes, and there's the missing posters all over the thing. And he goes to the memorials, and he's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, and then he sees his own name there. Now that's a twist, isn't it? It has since been confirmed that being in the quantum realm isn't what saved him. Now, that almost doesn't matter, because him being in the quantum realm was still necessary. If he hadn't had that time dilation, none of these events would have been able to happen. So it is still the critical point. It's just... And so he just sprints. Ah, quick, bell, knock, knock, knock. Oh, God, please. And there's Cassie, who's a teenager now, because it's been five years. And there's just this really heartwarming scene of, oh, my God, it's you and it's your life. And holy crap, I, I don't, again, I don't know how to imagine that. It's someone that, like, left my life years ago, suddenly comes back in looking exactly the same. That's just, I don't even know how to process that. So thankfully, thankfully, <laughs> they did bother to build the new facility back in Homecoming. So they, you know, they've got the new Avengers facility uh, interacting with, you know, the, the various people in the world trying to keep things coordinated. Uh, we find out that Danvers is going off to peace out for the entire movie. This is one of those unfortunate realities of movie making. The reason this was happening is because the nature of, as I talked about last time, the nature of the Captain Marvel film and the way it was pushed back and how late in production it was, even though it wasn't supposed to be, means that even though they knew she was going to play a relevant point here, they didn't really know anything about her. So they just decided, okay, we're going to piece her out and she's going to go and be part of the solution, galactically speaking. And then she'll come back for the finale. And so she just pieces out. We also hear about an underwater earthquake near Wakanda. I sure hope that's not Namor. <clears throat> or whatever his name is. I also point this out. Little to no music. It's just really, really quiet. And then Scott shows up. And the first sign of hope in five years. And of course he is naturally the key to everything happening. This then leads to a really subtle point that I didn't catch the first time around. There's actually a lot of stuff I didn't catch the first time around. It's a long movie. Riss, uh, we cut to Tony, who is talking to his daughter, and his daughter comes out with what looks like an Iron Man helmet on, but if you look at it, it's blue and stylized fairly differently. That's the rescue helmet. It even mentions it's a suit I'm building for your mom. Cute. So Tony, of course, says no. Of course he says no. He can't lose all of this. He had his second chance. And, well, see, here's kind of the problem. Tony also says no mostly because of the fact that there's no, uh, I don't want to say certainty of it. What they're doing is they're playing with something that is such an unknown that by all his understandings of it, it can't lead to a good outcome unless he's able to do the anchor method of time travel, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Of course, we'll get back to that in a minute, because at the moment they go and talk to Professor Hulk, who has completed his character arc off-camera, mostly because they can never find a way to really shove it on camera. Do you see how many eggs? He had like a bowl of eggs. It's got to be like a dozen eggs in one thing. Good God. Where are they getting all these resources? Again, some scenes just don't really fit with the whole despair, doom thing that I mentioned earlier. But you notice we're already kind of drifting out of Act 2. In fact, we only have a couple more scenes before we leave Act 2 formally. Now, 
this is where I left to take a bathroom break right here, um, right during the Hulk scene. When I got back, um, I he was like, okay, I'm going to head off and do this other thing and blah, blah, blah. I completely missed an extremely important scene. So he, this is when Tony goes to you know figure it out, and he he, pro, he figures out how to go ahead and quantum anchor back and leave and blah blah all the time travely stuff that is needed. And he says, "You know, I, I love you a ton. Well, I love you three thousand. That's, ooh, yeah, that's mean. And apparently, from the fact that uh, his actual children say that, which is even nicer." But then he goes to talk to Pepper, and he's like, I figured it out. I, I, I figured it out. I did it. And she says flat out, a lot of people got lucky. A lot of people got, or we, we got lucky. Sorry, I'm saying that in the reverse. We got lucky. A lot of people didn't. A lot of other people didn't get lucky. And um, he offers to just straight up stop, to just abandon it, walk away from it, never come back. And, you, and she says, but would you be able to rest? And I never got that line the first time I saw this, because I, I was taking a bathroom break. Kind of an important line, considering. This brings us into Act 3. Man, we're just racing through this. This is a very high-paced film, which is good, because it's really long. This then leads to uh, getting the team together, which is what Act 3 is. So, Act 3 is when the tone starts to come up noticeably. Uh, first... First thing that happens is they're at the facility and Tony comes by and they've interacted several times. You get the impression they've talked. I mean, it's been five years, right? They had to have stopped by. They knew where he lived. And this, however, this, this is the scene where Captain America and Iron Man, where Rogers and Stark finally reconnect, where they finally bury the hatchet, where they finally shake hands. It's like, yes, we're together. Again, we're, the band is together. We're going to do this. He even gives a shield back, for God's sakes. Huh. And it makes sense that Act 3, getting the team together, would begin with these two men. So, you'll notice poor Scott is treated as kind of the, you know, the butt monkey of a lot of this film. It's a damn shame considering how critical he is to everything. And he turns out to be very useful, even in combat, especially in the final battle, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, uh, thankfully, Hulk is kind, offers him a taco. You know, here you go, buddy. So, okay, now we got to talk about Thor. Let me go ahead and start by saying that Thor going through severe, massive amounts of post-traumatic stress over everything that happened and not properly recovering and not dealing with it at all, that's all awesome. It's one of my favorite sec ideas of the film is the fact that Thor has completely not moved on at all. Like, we see that with Widow and how she's just kind of keeping busy because what else are you going to do, right? We see that with Cap, who is basically putting on a smile for everyone else while he himself is dying inside. But with Thor, we see Thor, this powerful, amazing, godlike being who is just a broken, broken, shattered mess. He shouldn't be fat. I know, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Speaking as a fat person, he should not be fat here. It diminishes the, the, the way they're going with it. You know why? Because him being fat is presented as the joke. Not him being... And, and not, not all of the trauma. That's presented very straight and real. 
But instead, no, he's just, he's got the fat suit on and it looks awkward and weird, probably because it's, I mean, have you seen Chris Hemsworth? And um, the, the entire idea is, ha <laughs> look at him, look at him, he's so funny. He's playing Fortnite. Oh, by the way, one of the people insists that Noob Master is Wong. Not sure I believe that, but anyways. <clears throat> I don't think that's correct. And I'm going to use a weird parallel. Sometimes fiction is does this thing where it's like, ha-ha, <laughs> look at this person. They're different in some way, right? Like, oh, and that's the joke. There's no actual attempt to use that in a humorous manner. It's just, they're different, ha-ha. Uh, man in a dress. Or, um, ha-ha, they've got mud on their face. In a literal sense, like, they've... they've, they've They've walked into something, or, oh, they just got hurt, you know. It's basic schadenfreude, which I'm probably pronouncing incredibly wrong, and I don't care. I suck at German pronunciations, I'm sorry. Suck at English ones, too. Point being, I think that him being fat could have been a thing they used, but they didn't, and instead it's just a point-and-laugh gag, which is awful. It really diminishes the presentation of the character, in my opinion. And further isn't helped by the fact that during the briefing scene, when they start planning the time heist, he's played off as a joke, even though, again, this is a man who is suffering from enormous, crippling issues. Anyways, I mean, just the way he reacts to the name Thanos. They spend like a solid 30 seconds if with no dialogue of him just trying to recover from hearing the word. Think about that. <sighs> Meanwhile, Ronan, that is to say, Barton, that is to say, Hawkeye, that is to say, the most awesome Avenger, the heart of the team, right? Well, the heart of the team's off murdering people on en masse. That's okay. They're all bad people, which makes sense. I mean, he's not a bad person. He isn't. And I know what you're saying, but he's being a super vicious vigilante. Of course he is. They're alive, and his family isn't. In fact, a lot of people aren't. But these people, these scumsuckers, these these murderers and thieves and drug dealers and all and human traffickers are still alive when all these other people who were much better people are dead. Wrong. So he's going around correcting it. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me. So then they start talking about the nature of the time travel. Okay, I've talked about time travel so much, I, I don't even know what to say. I think it's actually one of the biggest things I'm known for at this point on my show, is talking about time travel, along with Star Trek and economics. Those are the big ones. Now, here's the catch. Uh, this film doesn't really know what it wants to do with its own time travel. No, really. I know, I know, I know. You're all going to jump to the comments and prove me incredibly wrong. Hear me out, okay? I've read the interviews. I've, I've, seen, I've seen the comments in Twitter and in, well, interview. It's all interviews at this point because, like, the director's whatever track isn't out yet. Um, at least it wasn't as of me recording this. But everything I've read and seen indicates the same thing. See, I figured I'd wait and get the behind-the-scenes perspective on things, and maybe that would change my mind a few things. No. They can't make up their own mind. The writers, directors, and Feige himself cannot agree on what the hell's going on with the time travel here. The general consensus seems to be, just go with it. Just go with it. So you know what? I'm going to. I know you're all expecting me to completely dissect the time travel, but the problem is, all I can say is that when the creators themselves cannot agree on the nature of their time travel, or the nature of their mechanics of their plot, then I have nothing to talk about. 
It's the ending of Twilight Princess problem all over again. If even the creators don't know what's happening, what the hell do you want from me? <laughs> like, that crosses a threshold for me as an analyzer, as a discusser, as a theory crafter, as a geek. The moment you just kind of throw your hands up in the air, I'm like, okay. <clears throat> Moving on. That being said, <clears throat> I, have to, I have to say one thing about the time travel. Because based on everything they do present early on, everything they're talking about is full-on Type 3 time travel. So, the idea here, remember this, the idea here being, you go over here, and then you you time travel, but rather than going here, what happens is you go over here. So, the relative motion of your temporal perception doesn't alter in the tiniest, slightest bit, it's just time itself is effectively being altered around you as you continue moving forward. And, of course, each jump means a new different timeline, which means nothing you do affects your original. This is actually one of the reasons why the time anchor, which they don't ever call it that, but that's, what, that's my term for it. Sorry, didn't mean to be so loud. Uh, it's just so necessary. So not only can they go back to the time they left, but the specific place they left. In other words, they need to go back to this original timeline. So as they're going off creating all these branches, they need to be able to go back to the original trunk. Which all makes sense right up until the ending, which I don't even want to talk about that. <clears throat> So, time travel. I like how Thor's rambling discussion kind of summarizes Thor, too. Like, well, I just want to forget that one, right? It wasn't as bad as I remembered on repeat viewing, by, by recollection, but still, I mean, you can just move on. Also, there are three stones in New York at the same time. That is just an astonishing coincidence, isn't it? That is, that is mind-blowing. And they have to do... Uh, oh, oh, that's right, that's right. And then they have to have one, they've got one round trip. This is our one and only shot of this, which is really dumb. Because all they have to do is go to a point where they can get more pen particles, bring those back, and then do this more. I, I know this because that's actually what they end up doing in the film. Now, they do that because it's the backup plan, but still. This leads us into Act 4, by far the largest act of the film. It takes up most of the runtime. Act 4, so I've, I've named each of these. You know, we have Act 1 which is the fake-out. Act 2 is the fallout. Act 3 is getting the team together. Act 4, celebration. Act 4 is literally just a fan service chunk of let's celebrate the franchise. Let us celebrate everything that has brought us up to this point in the series. And, and I actually have relatively little to uh, analyze here. In fact, my notes, you probably can't even tell, my notes are all staggered to keep track of which timeline I'm talking about at which point in time. But uh, I'm with it. I've always liked fan service as long as it's good. That's always been my requirement. And this is clearly just everyone, Just this is just a love letter. This is just, hey guys, t it's 11 years at this point when this came out. 11 years of awesome. Eh? <laughs> so, the Ancient One really was defending New York, I told you guys. So let's see. Uh, first, the Ancient One knocks, whoops, knocks the astral projection out of, out of Professor Hulk. I like how Banner comes out of that, by the way. Meanwhile, Thor is completely straight up losing it, actually having legitimate panic attacks. Trust me, that's a pretty good presentation of panic attacks, some of what he does. I've, I've been there. Rocket gives a really good speech to him to try and steady him, but it doesn't work. He just flips out and runs. Meanwhile, Widow and Barton go to Vormir. You know, it's funny because none of them know. Like, none of them really know what's required. They, they can kind of guess, 
but they just happen to send two people who care about each other an extremely large amount to, to Vormir. That's, that's cute. Meanwhile, we see Nebula and Gamora back at the beginning. Oh, and this is when Thanos enters the film. Thanos 2, or Thanos 0.5 if you prefer. Now he's interesting. I'll get more to him in a minute. Meanwhile, back in the back in the first Avengers film, we have America's ass. Okay, I know I know I don't like to repeat jokes for these, but that one does get me every time. Uh, the Hydra agents show up. Poor Hulk having to take the stairs. I, I gotta say, I re- I know I don't like to repeat the jokes again, but I just want to talk about this. He gets on the thing, and all the Hydra's agents there, and it's the it's the elevator scene from Winter Soldier, and we're like, oh god, he's gonna have this super badass, awesome scene on the elevator. And then he leans over and just says, "Hell, Hydra!" Oh my god! Even this time around, that had me howling. Now this is even funnier. I don't know if this is on purpose, but it's even funnier given the fact that this was not too long after the whole. By the way, Captain America was always a Hydra agent thing that was happening in the comics, which has already been retconned as of now. By the way. So that that caught me. That was good. Meanwhile, Robert Redford shows up to be Secretary I'm Evil. Did you know this is his final filming credit ever? Or at least as of the time of me recording this. He actually was doing his final filming credit just before this on a totally separate unrelated thing. And they found out that that was it. That was his retirement performance. And they were like, hey, you got a minute? They pulled him over and did like an emergency shoot of that scene. To, to just one day of shooting, just to get that in. <laughs> and so he could play that role. What? Then that's literally the last role, assuming he doesn't come out of retirement like Stallone did. That's the last role he'll ever play. I just Something about that really tickles me. Anyway, so he shows up, and everything would have gone swimmingly except for Hulk, so Loki gets, a, gets the thing, and he leaves to go to a TV show, which hasn't come out as the time of me recording this. God, I hope it's good, because... This whole series of events is actually kind of just when it comes to the time travel aspect of things. Basically so we could ensure that Loki died in the first film and, and gets his own TV show at the same time. But on this, I mean, at the same time, they're doing a freaking Wanda and Vision show and they're also making a Widow movie, so what the hell ever at this point, right? I mean, why have death stick? This is comics. Let's go. So, <clears throat> Loki goes off to be a show. Captain, Captain America fights Captain America. That's, that's a funny little fight. It's actually doubly interesting because Past Cap, this is actually kind of cool, Past Cap is fighting full tilt because he thinks he's fighting a deadly enemy. Present Cap is fighting restricted because he's fighting himself and he doesn't want to hurt himself. Obvious, right? So he ends up having to basically trick him. Bucky's alive! What? Okay, okay. Meanwhile, while they're off doing this whole heist planning manipulating thing and trying to defeat Captain America and all that, Banner just convinces the Ancient One of what he's doing. Can I just jump in here really quick? One of their premises, I know I said I wouldn't talk too much about the time travel, is that the flow of time is created by the Infinity Stones, which I'm not even going to get into that. And that means removal of a stone means an alteration of time flow. Okay, I'm with that. It's not technically separate timelines, but it is functionally separate timelines. Okay, I'm with it. Then, the way they figure out they're going to bypass this is they're going to go pull the stone, but then bring it back the instant it's left. And they keep saying that, the instant it leaves. Now, the only way this would work is if they technically come back before they take it. Because otherwise, there's going to be some kind of gap there. Even if it's only one second, 
that's a lot of time for a lot of things to happen in a universe that suddenly doesn't have a stone, right? So that doesn't match. Oh yeah, by the way, in case you think I didn't notice, no, I'm quite aware. Uh, yeah, no, there's no there's no infinity stones in the present as a consequence of all these events. What the hell is that going to do to the universe? Funnily enough, near as I can tell nothing, unless Multiverse of Madness is an indicative title. Anyways... Oh god, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Just the barriers start breaking down, because there's no Infinity Stones. Anyways, so, Banner convinces her, which is cool and very Banner. Meanwhile, Nebula and Nebula apparently have shared Wi-Fi. Now, this is partially explainable. They are in the same solar system at the same time, so that makes a little bit of sense. But Thanos, well, this is, this is probably one of the things they do better with him in this film. See, he picks up on it very quickly. He figures out what's going on within minutes. And he's like, ah, okay. I guess I'll go ahead and do this. Notice he treats past Nebula like she's just an object, like she's property. I just point that out because, well, it's re it'll be relevant in a minute. Meanwhile, we have our first real closure scene, of which there are three. One for each of the biggies. And this closure scene happens to be between Thor and Frigga. It's actually a really good scene. Credit to both actors. They do a really good job with it. He, Frigga notices him like that, and within maybe like eight seconds realizes he's from the future. Just, of course she does. I like her comment on that. I was raised by witches, kiddo. He so desperately wants to talk to her. Just, just talk to her. And he recites his whole story, and he finishes it with it, which I'm just, there I am, what else could I do? Just an idiot with an axe. And she says, you're not an idiot. You're a failure. Because there's nothing wrong with failing. It's probably one of the most important and powerful moments in the entire film. I know that sounds strange, considering there's much more emotional beats later, but from a really cutting to the heart of reality thing, that is an incredible message. There's nothing wrong with failing. We are so hard on ourselves. Trust me, I know. We are so hard on ourselves, and we tolerate no failure in ourselves. <laughs> Think about it for a minute. So she tells him what he needs to know. And she tells him you need to be who you are. And not, you know, who you're trying to be. It's a great scene. I would say it's the best scene in the film, but unfortunately there's like ten best scenes in this film. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I texted my mom because you know, I was kind of chatting with her during this film. and uh, She admitted that she cried during this one too. I say too because I mentioned that I was crying to it. She says, she, I told her, isn't that stupid? And she said, no. She didn't think it's stupid. So, <clears throat> Rhodey and Nebula. Wish we saw more of those two. There's actually some decent parallels and similarities between them. Unfortunately, it doesn't result in anything. It's just like one scene. Although, there is this great bit where they see Quill, and we... Okay, I, I need to admit something that's going to sound kind of weird. I YouTube and stream for a living. Now, usually, I got these on. My headphones... But every now and again, I find myself wondering what it looks like if you're not hearing it. Because the stream obviously hears the game audio. And I hear the game audio. But everyone else, like if someone walked in the door, they would just see some dude sitting here. Oh no, God! I know, you're right. 
just responding to someone in chat. And it would probably look so awkward and stupid and dumb, and that's basically exactly what they pull with Quill, is just... Because you can't hear the music, so it's just stupid. Anyways, this then leads to a really great scene. So they get together, they've got the scepter, Stark looks at Cap, Cap looks at Stark. Do you trust me? Because apparently he's a lad. No, no jokes here. It's a really good scene. Because they haven't even decided if they're actually doing this. But they're going to go back to 1970, and they're going to go get the Pym Particles, and they're going to go ahead and get the, other, the Tesseract, which is what they're missing. And it all boils down to, do you trust me? He's like, yeah. Yeah, I do. And off they go. So, this leads to our second big closure scene. It's actually a series of scenes across the next several, several minutes where he gets to interact with his dad. He gets a lot of screen time, of course, because of course he does. But I, I don't even know what to say. He opens up so much to Howard. He opens up so much to him. And, and, and oh, each scene, he's more relaxed and more comfortable. In the first scene, he was so stunned seeing his dead dad. Remember, he never got to say, I love you. He never got to, to, to have that goodbye. The last thing he remembers of his dad is having an argument, and then his dad left and got murdered by whatever Russian people sent the Winter Soldier. Probably Hydra, because that's just kind of their shtick. That's messed. And that's something he never got to do. And so he finally opens up to him, and he gives this wonderful quote. I love this quote. I wrote it down. No amount of money bought a second of time. Which is ironic, because it's a time travel story. But it's still true. And he... He, he hugs him. He finally gets to have that moment with his dad. Thank you for everything. That door is finally... That, that equation has finally been concluded. That program has finally run. That loop is finally concluded. I don't know how else to put it. I cannot put into words. As someone who despises an incomplete loop, I can't imagine what it feels like to have that finally concluded for him. And, and Rogers, he sees Peggy. This is probably when he started thinking about that. He, he, of course, turned it down because it wasn't an option at the time, but this is probably when he started thinking about just staying here with her and just living out life. And, yeah. And his scene, it's, 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 just, it's almost as powerful because it's just him. No dialogue. He looks down. And you can see he's just holding himself back. It's like, all right, whatever. Let's move on. Move on. So... This then leads to Vormir. This is the bridge. We're, we're still kind of in the celebration act, but there's kind of a bridge act which starts the moment we get to Vormir and terminates in a minute. I'll talk about it. Um, so there's Widow and there's Barton and they're on Vormir. We know what's going to happen. We don't know whom. Now I'm going to go ahead and admit something, and I imagine a lot of you are with me on this. A lot of people, myself included, figured it'd be Barton. Because there's there was a Black Widow movie coming out the next year. And that's why. <laughs> because there was a Black Widow movie coming out. No other reason. So what what follows is one of a... It, it, it's really great seeing the two act on each other. That bond. Do you know how rare it is to see a male and a female have an extremely strong relationship that is utterly unromantic? Like, that's a rarity in fiction. I see it all the time in real life, but it's so rare to see that portrayed so well in fiction, and they just nail this. These two people are extremely close. And what ensues is one of the most interesting fights 
in the entire franchise. It's short, but it's both people fighting desperately to save the other and sacrifice themselves. And at the end, the reason she ends up winning is because she's dangling, and she's not holding on to him. It's not one of those things where it's like, hold on. No, she's just, her, her hand is open. Her arm is limp. He's the one holding on to her. They take a moment, they take a scene to acknowledge her sacrifice and how much it's affecting them all. And just... Yeah. It's okay, we'll see her next year. Or, you know what I mean. <sighs> so Banner, Rocket, and Tony build a gauntlet to, to hold the thing, to control the thing. I find myself wondering how that would compare to the actual Infinity Gauntlet. Just, just food for thought, because, you know, that's the ancient artifact of Dwarven Doom, whereas this thing is made by three of the best geniuses in the universe. With, I mean, if Shuri was involved in this, it would be even more insane. <laughs> Think about that for a second. So they make it. Thor begs, pleads, please. I, I wrote it down. It's got, it's got to be me. Let me, do, let me do this. Let me do something good. Let me do something right. You know, I, I've failed at everything I've done for, like, two movies now. Please let me do something. Three movies, excuse me. Please let me do something right. Please let me contribute. But Hulk's like, no, it's got to be me. What I like is he mentions, and as an aside, that, it, you know, it, it's like it was this terrible purpose. Right? You remember that? All the way back in Avengers 1, Stark was trying to, to cheer up Banner, and I was like, you know, maybe it happened for a reason. Maybe that saved you. Maybe it was for some kind of good cause, like there was a, a destiny or a fate for you to become the Hulk. And Banner at the time rejected it horribly, and yet here he is. Now you'll notice everyone's fully armored and ready to go. That's actually important. Because Thanos' ship comes through the Sanctuary too, and then unloads on Hello. And, and the only reason any of them survive is because they were all ready to go, just in case. But uh, there's that hope moment. It goes quiet. You see, you see the Laura's on the phone. Birds. For the first time, we can actually hear birds in the background audio. Holy crap. Then Act 5 begins. I call Act 5 the final battle. I know, very original. 33 minutes, by the way. Act 5. Now, there's actually two chunks to it. The first is just kind of reacting to it. Like, oh, God, and, you know... Thor, Stark, and Rogers go after Thanos. Um, Nebula versus Nebula, the Cap thing. There's, there's just some stuff before we get to the real final battle. So there's like two halves to it. So the first half, like I said, Thor, Stark, and Rogers, the big three, go after Thanos. Now this Thanos, he's... Well, first of all, he's a substantially less interesting character than the Thanos of the previous film. But that makes sense. The previous film was all about him growing as an individual, as a person. It was his character arc. Now, this is the Thanos from then. The Thanos who was still a Justice Lord. The Thanos who, if you remember, had no problem wiping off the blood. Why would he? Why would that mean anything? There's no regret here. There's no remorse. There's no sacrifice. In fact, he learns the wrong lesson. I'm going to kill everything and everyone. And when I'm done, I'm going to just make a new universe that will be much better than this one. Yeah. Sure thing, Apocalypse. This also leads to 
the fight, and I have to admit, as always, I just don't have much to say about specific fight sequences, but seeing Thanos here is actually pretty awesome, because in the previous thing, you know, he took off the armor. He was the monk, and he was using the stones to fight. Here, he has no stones, just the armor and that amazing blade, which is actually physically incredibly stupid and badly designed, but very cool looking. <laughs> and also, uh, he's a berserker from hell. Every scene he is, he is just absolutely brutal. Bam, bam, kong. And even though the three are attacking him in unison, he still manages to keep up and defeat them. And every time they try to do something, he manages to turn it on them. This, by the way, is very important, and it's going to come up in a minute. Because Thanos, as I've said many times, he has the Hulk's kit. Big, strong, durable. But that's not his approach. That's not his method. That's just his powers. What his method is he is a tool user. He is very adaptable, and he thinks his way and maneuvers his way through a situation. And this is how he can keep up with people who are technically stronger than him, just like Stark and Captain America can, because there's plenty of people who are a lot better than them that they can keep up with because they are more tactical or more skilled or more experienced. Now, there's this really, really great scene where Nebula is there, Oh, God. And just Nebula, our Nebula, tries to convince the past Nebula, you can change, it's okay. She walks out like this, you know. Gamora puts her weapon down past Gamora, the only Gamora at this point. It's okay, you don't have to do this. He won't let me. Oh. You ever want to see the crimes of old Thanos, or Thanos in general, that's it right there. He won't let me. So Nebula kills her. Which makes a lot of sense to me. Thor is, of course, not at his peak, so he's having some issues keeping up. Thanos takes the axe, starts putting it in, and then another of those really awesome scenes happens, where the hammer goes flying off into Cap's hand. Now, what's funny is I did find several interviews about this specific moment. Apparently, Joss Whedon had intended this all the way back in Age of Ultron. Of course he did. He's a comic geek. He knows how this works. The idea is, way back then... Cap grabbed the hammer and realized he could lift it, and so didn't because he didn't want to rub it in, because he's not that kind of guy. He didn't want to be a dick about it. So he was just like, oh, whoops. Thor saw it and was like, oh, right, right. So Thor's reaction of, I knew it, is just even better, because it's, it's obviously there for all of his fans who picked up on that, too. Of course he could do it. He could have done it all along. He only does it now because he has to. By the way, Cap with Mjolnir and the shield is a freaking doom machine. And awesome! He actually manages to keep up with Thanos, Berserker, Warrior Thanos, for quite some time. Holy crap. So that's all amazingly awesome. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the shield does break, and finally Thanos starts pushing even harder than he already has been, and manages to actually destroy half of a Vibranian shield. Yeah. Ever since Captain America, the first film... That is to say, there's been a recurring trend for Rogers himself, and that's just getting back up, refusing to stay down. I could do this all day, is his catchphrase, right? And sometimes jokingly and sometimes seriously, but it keeps coming up. He refused to, to stand down to bullies. He refused to, to bow down to Nazis. He refused to bow down to Loki. At every step of the way, he has refused to stay down, even when he was beaten. This even came up when he was fighting his friend back in Civil War. Even though he was defeated and Stark might have actually tried to kill him, 
he got right back up. That's always been Cap. That has always been him. So there is a, a gorgeous shot. I can just picture it right now. I thought about throwing up a picture of it, but you know, I, that's not my format. There's this gorgeous shot. And there's he's on the left side of the screen. And there's like the sun is barely visible because it's mostly obscured by the smoke and the clouds. And you could see the army just pouring out from the right side of the screen going forward. And Thanos is standing there. And in the distance, you can actually see parts of the sanctuary, too, just kind of, which is staring down right at Cap from the angle it's presented. And he is the only one standing up against this malevolence. And that's another thing, by the way. I mentioned how the mal malice and the cruelty was something that Thanos grew out of in Infinity War. None of that here. He flat out tells him, what I've all done, all the times I've, I've massacred and killed, it's always been dispassionate. No, this time, I am going to enjoy what I do to your world. This is the full, cruel, malicious, evil Thanos. I don't know why to, how to explain it, but of all the really emotional beats in the film, this is the one that hits me the hardest. I had to stop the film for like five minutes. I'm not even joking. Because I was crying. And because it hit me so hard. On your left. <laughs> and everyone comes. Everyone comes. All of them from the whole franchise shows up. To, to stand up against Thanos. And I realized something that never, that never really occurred to me before. I wrote it down right here just to make sure I didn't, didn't forget to talk about it. Earlier in the Infinity War, Gamora said, Ha ha, all your, all your massacring, all your killing. The universe has judged you and found you wanting. But now what we are seeing here is the universe rejecting Thanos and all his insanity and all his cynicism, and all his maliciousness, and all his cruelty. The universe turned around Thanos and said, Piss off. What ensues is 13 minutes of glorious awesome. I, 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 I got it. I've got it written down right here. Just gold. I, I don't even know what to say about it. I actually wrote down twice. I'm not even joking. How cool the rescue suit looks. It's so awesome. Um, Tony hugging Spidey. He's like, oh, thank God, it's you. Oh, it's you. Um, I, I, I like to think that the second Strange came back, he was on his feet. All right, we got work to do. We got to get a lot of people together. We need to get the whole force. We've got to go get, you know, the Wakandans, and we've got to go get the, the, the Nova Corps, and we've, just, we've got to get everyone. We've got to get everyone on board. <sighs> Scarlet. Wanda. We've seen little tidbits of what she can do, but this is probably the most severe of what she ever does. Thanos, going full tilt, is pushed back by her. She actually damages his sword. First thing that's done that is the power of an Infinity Stone itself to actually damage that thing. And it's also the first time he has any kind of fear or panic, like, Oh, God! Fire! Rain! Fire! Quick! Quick! Because, after all, she is a glass cannon. So for all her offensive power... You know, a guy with a gun could end her, so she has to change, she has to stop killing him. So it works. Again, thinking his way out of the situation, by the way. This is when Marvel shows up. Miss Danvers shows up, and 
Well, I mean, you know, every now and again, you just really need a hammer. So she shows up and she smashes the sanctuary too. Now, if you pay attention, there's some subtle facial acting on Thanos during these scenes. It's basically when he realizes he's losing and he starts to reprioritize. He's like, okay, now it's got to be all about getting the stones and getting the stones. Now, I have to go get them. So, okay. Um, so the Sanctuary 2 goes down. By the way, think of the salvage. Think of all they're going to salvage from the sucker. I'm just kidding. They don't get anything. It all gets dusted. Oh, damn it, Tony. You could have left the wreckage. I'm kidding. He probably shouldn't have. We saw what happened last time. So Thanos is focusing full tilt on the gauntlet. Um, you know, there's several awesome scenes in conjunction. Like I said, I'm just kind of racing through this. Stark tries to stop him. Cap stop, tries to stop him. Thor tries to stop them. All of them fail. This this is Thanos going full tilt at this point. Then he fights Marvel. Now, she starts to beat him, and that makes sense. We've already seen that someone powered by an Infinity Stone can best him. That's logical. This is the problem, though. And I pointed this out in her movie and in here. See, her approach is that she's a hammer. She just bashes her way through the problem. But that's not what Thanos does. He outmaneuvers, and that's exactly what he does to her. She would have beat him, but he outmaneuvers her. She's more powerful, but he is more clever. And so he does actually manage to out-tactics her, because he's a tool user. And in so doing, manages to, to break the thing. Which then leads to... You can kind of see why he didn't tell Stark about this. Of course he built into the suit. Why wouldn't he? He is, after all, Iron Man. Ah, of course it has to be a weak one. There we go. That's better. All his forces, all his ship. There's actually a lot of cool background stuff going on as, as the camera pans around. But I, I, So I watched the whole scene twice. Once to watch the background elements and then once to watch him. Ebony Ma is like, no, my, my lord, uh, and he falls over. But no, Thanos himself, he doesn't say anything. There's no, no, there's no screaming. There's no, impossible, this cannot be. You know, usual stuff that villains say, none of that happens. He says not a word. He just looks around at all that he is, and the, the realization that he has truly, utterly, completely lost and he dies in silence. As usual, I love to hear your thoughts on things. I am very curious what you think was going through his head, basically, right at the end there. I don't mean like, oh, crap. No, I mean like, was that acceptance? Or was that despair? I like to think the latter, because this is a Thanos that never grew. You know, this is a Thanos that never learned the right lesson. He learned the wrong lesson. He became a worse person than our Thanos. I like to think that this Thanos is someone who was so utterly despairing. After all, silence is the sound of despair. That he just couldn't bring himself to bother, to try, or to do, because he knew it was over. And he was right. Rhodey comforts Tony. Then Peter comes in. And then Pepper. Six years Thanos has been in his head. For 11 years, from our perspective, he has been leading the charge. 
You can rest now. Constant fear. Think about that. Can you, can you picture that? I talked about that back in Infinity War. Constant fear. And having failed. But he did it. He really, actually, no really, no take backsies, did it. In fact, he didn't just save the Earth, he saved everyone. You'll notice during the funeral, basically everyone's there. Everyone's there. Even Harley Keener is there. The ending is 12 minutes long. I only mention that as an aside because I feel like it was longer. It's actually not that long. Uh, to use a bit of comparison, Return of the King's ending are 21 minutes long, to give you a little bit of a side-by-side -side there. Guess I looked that up. Shut up. He leaves a recorded... He has left a recorded message. You know what's funny is I've been doing that periodically for years now. Pretty much ever since I, it just kind of dawned on me that I have a webcam and a microphone and I can leave an actual visual audio message for people in case anything happens to me, you know, in case I get into an accident while I'm driving to the grocery store or whatever. And I update it periodically. Just leave it right there on my desktop just in case. So that, that scene actually hit me pretty hard too. Of course it did. Why wouldn't it? Little wreath going off in the river. Proof that Tony Stark has a heart. Even Ross was there. Did you catch that? I didn't catch that last time. Thunderbolt Ross. He's there in the background. Piss ant. <laughs> ah, Barton and Wanda try to comfort each other. Of course, they've both lost someone very, very close to them. So they're... I, I love his shtick. It's not, I wish she was back. It's, I wish she knew that we did it. That it wasn't for nothing. That she, that she, that she pushed us to victory. I wish she knew that. And happy, of course... You know, with, with Tony's daughter. Quick aside, actually. I like to think that one of the reasons Happy becomes such a surrogate father figure for, for, for Peter going forward in Far From Home is in, at least in part because of, well, not only how they bonded back in Homecoming, but because of the absence of, of Stark. And, you know, taking up the mantle and all that. Just, I don't know, just, just thinking out loud here. Queen Valkyrie. She's now Queen of the Asgardians also known as Scotland. They filmed it in Scotland. It's, it's actually supposed to be uh, somewhere in Norway, I believe. Anyways, Thor joins the Guardians. They're going to go look for Gamora. <sighs> then the worst part of the film for me happens. And I know that's going to cause so much grief. But after this emotional roller coaster, and I've just, I'm, I, I can literally prove there are literally tear spots on my notes. <laughs> After this whole emotional roller coaster, we get to the end and it's like, okay, so now you've got to go put these stones back where they came from. Okay, so that, let's see. Just to track, that means he needs to get the, the space stone back into a tesseract, which he doesn't have, and put that back into the facility. And then he needs to go to, uh, to New York and basically make sure that the scepter is there as soon as it was taken. Then he needs to go to uh, New York again. He could just stay there, I suppose, and go talk to the Ancient One and be like, hey, here's, here's the Time Stone. Sorry about the trouble. Thanks. By the way, going to die in five years. Bye. And then he needs to go and inject the ether. <laughs> that, that's probably the weirdest one right there. 
But don't forget, he's also got to get the Power Stone back inside its circular casing, which he doesn't have. Or maybe he does somewhere. And then make sure that that's back in the trap thing so that Quill can wake up and go rescue it. Then he has to go back. And I just, how do you return the Soul Stone exactly? Can't you just picture how awkward that's going to be? Hey, Red, Red Skull. Red, oh my god, really? Here. Here's your stupid stone back. Plink. I do not wish the stone. Yeah, whatever. Can I just throw it over the cliff? Is that a thing? It will return to its... Yeah, okay. Bye. Son of... No, no, don't do any of that crap. You must sacrifice... No, I don't. I'm done. Now, <laughs> I don't uh, begrudge Captain America a life of contentment. I really don't. I mentioned earlier that the writers don't agree with the directors who also don't agree with Feige. This is another example of that, a specific example. None of them can agree on exactly what happens here. It would have made a degree of sense based on how it was being presented by uh, uh, by the directors, excuse me, if he had just reappeared back in the platform as old, you know, old Cap. Because that fully fits in with the logic that the film is presented. He, it's Anchor, right? It's all about the Anchor point. But instead, he just kind of shows up over there, and he's been waiting there for an unknown period of time for them. And what? There's no logic there. It just makes for a, oh, what's that over there kind of a scene, which is also unnecessary and padding. Whatever. I don't like it. I'm sorry. I know. I'm going to get some flack for it, and that's okay. Because that, we're all here to be ourselves. We can all be ourselves. This is uh, 2020 at this point. Christmas, I believe, actually. I think we can all admit that we like these things enough to get passionate enough about them, to talk about them and comment them, even and indeed especially when we don't agree. Because there's nothing wrong with not agreeing. So, by all means, don't agree with me. I think it's dumb. <laughs> I think they could have done this 20 times better in several different ways. But it is nice to know that Rogers at least got to enjoy a full life with some version or another <laughs> of her. In some timeline or another, or possibly this one, whatever. And that is it. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a trip. Before I cut off, I just want to say thank you for all of you for putting through this. This has been, uh, I've been working on this basically all week, uh, this entire MCU run. This has been absolutely exhausting. Uh, but I do hope you guys have enjoyed this trip through the MCU Phase 3 and Honestly, through the MCU as a whole, as of this point, I'll have covered every MCU film up until this point. And then, you know, kind of a connected thing. I've been doing this for years at this point, plural. Um, I, I, I just wanted to share really briefly. I often, and I, I stand by this, I view Far From Home as an epilogue to the MCU. I, I say that, I shouldn't call it the MCU. An epilogue to the Infinity Saga. This is the end. And then Far From Home is the epilogue. And who knows, maybe we'll cover it next year. I don't know, that's not up to me, as always. But uh, going forward, I think I'd be okay with things not really being connected and them experimenting more with the show kind of stuff. The problem is the existing shows were under Perlmutter, which is part of the reason why the shows and the MCU didn't actually blend over. I forgot to talk about that during Infinity War, but that's a thing. We'll see where they go with it. I think there's a lot of new stuff they can do. I think there's a lot of new directions they can go in. I think they should start some new stuff, basically. You know, get going and, and establish an entirely new chapters, plural. And I don't think they should do some big multi-year arc again. At least not, not yet. 
it's, take some time, branch out a little bit, do some, do some side stuff. And then we can go ahead and build up to, I don't know, Apocalypse or something. Or Onslaught, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? What do you guys think? It's also one of the reasons I don't even like to call it Phase 4, because to me it's just, okay, now here's the bridge. But I digress. I hope you've enjoyed these thoughts, as much of a failure as they are. I'll see you next time, guys.